Good afternoon, 7 Investors, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of 7 Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks-Klein. Sorry, I just made my computer jump a little bit. Uh, I'm being joined today by Steve Symington. Steve, yesterday was one of those days in the market that I don't want to say we live for, but one of our goals is to hold people's hands while this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff is going on. Uh, This is going to be our top story, so we'll get to it in a second. But like, do you even, if you didn't do this for a living, would a day like this even bother you in the slightest? Uh, I mean, maybe if I didn't do it for a living, but it, it shouldn't, you know, if you don't, uh, it doesn't bother me at all. And, uh, I, you know, I, I posted a couple times, is anyone else excited for this? And, and um, you know, I, I felt a lot of a lot of panic and angst in, in my Twitter feed uh, just watching it. But it really, this sh- this isn't a big deal. And, uh, you know, watching your portfolio drop five, six, seven percent. And yes, that's abnormal. Uh, but it is at the same time normal. This kind of stuff happens. And uh, it, it shouldn't be bothersome. Uh, take a deep breath, focus on the long term and you'll be just fine. It also creates investing opportunities. So wherever you are, wherever you're watching this, we would like your questions and comments. They can be about market volatility. We'll try to answer whatever questions you have for us. If you just want to say hello, say hello. Theoretically, wherever you are, uh, they will pop up. We learned that that's not entirely true because if I start a watch party, the comments in that watch party do not come through. But for the most part, we will get your comments. But our top story today is uh, how do you deal with a volatile market uh, and why we're not worried about a stock market crash. So let's talk about what happened Tuesday. Tuesday morning, most portfolios showed a sea of red. I I opened up my portfolio and it looked like a a bloodbath. I think I had one stock up and I don't want to say it was like maybe like Royal Caribbean, like it was something that like maybe shouldn't be up. Uh, We'll talk about that a little (laughs) bit later. This, of course, can scare investors. It brings I saw a lot of people on Facebook and Twitter. Oh, I cashed everything out. I'm just going to sit in the side. Steve, I'm going to throw one at you that we didn't plan for. So a lot of people take the logic of, well, I'll cash out and I'll buy back in at a lower price. That's a bad idea. That seems like a good idea on the surface. Tell people why this is not a great idea. You're you're chasing returns. And, and uh, I mean, it, often it ends up being the reverse uh, of what you hope. And uh, you end up selling uh, when stocks are down and you know buying when they're higher because you think the trends are going to continue. And too often that doesn't happen. And you know, this is opportunity uh, for people who have some cash on hand. Sure. Uh, but if you're fully invested, it is often the worst thing to sell uh, right as stocks plunge, really with no justifying underlying reason. Uh, for for that move for the business, really, I think the key is to focus on on whether your thesis is still intact, and uh, then consider selling if something materially changed with the actual business, not just the stock price. That's that's how you need to think about it. Yeah, and I think people forget that these are businesses. So there's a stock in my portfolio yesterday that was down ten percent in the middle of the day, right. and when I looked at the end of the day to see where it was, I was pretty shocked that it finished up ten percent. But here's the reality. This particular company, if you wanted to say it had any news recently, it had very positive news. But the reality, it didn't really have a lot of news. The the news was just a, a, a story, a news article in a prominent place that sort of reiterated some things from the earnings call. But so nothing happened. So why on earth? Now, if yesterday uh, we learned that uh, COVID-19 has now turned into COVID-20 and it's resistant to all vaccines and we're back at square one, well, then you might want to rethink your, you know, your positions and travel stocks or, you know, wh- whether you should, you know, buy more dominoes or, or whatever it is. 
But these short-term moves, and we're seeing a lot of volatility based on what's happening in the moment. You know, There'll be a good report on how many people have been vaccinated, and someone will say, geez, it looks like we'll be closer to normal in April. And then Dr. Fauci will come out and say, well, maybe it's more like June, and things will be very volatile. That didn't change the business of any of the companies you most likely own. Steve, is yesterday kind of a textbook example of short-term volatility and why you don't use something like a stop-loss order? Yes. So um, the funny thing was I had been receiving questions all week at uh, our info at 7investing.com email inbox um, and you know DMs, everything. People asking me, do you guys use stop-losses? And I, I said repeatedly, no, I don't use stop-losses. Uh, and this is one of those things that, that can be very dangerous, actually. I had somebody yesterday um, retweet something and say, this is dangerous advice. You know, use stop losses, people. And I'm like, well, actually, um, several of my stocks, I would have been stopped out of my position if I had a stop loss order in place. And uh, there was you know, one stock I actually talked about earlier this week, Lemonade. Uh, that was down, I think, 17 or 18 percent in the morning. If you had a 15 percent stop loss, you would have been stopped out of your shares, sold them, and then it rebounded uh, nearly into the green at one point. And uh, it, it's silly because you end up losing positions in businesses you otherwise wouldn't have sold. And uh, this is, you know, volatility, like I said on Twitter yesterday, is a feature, not a bug of our markets. And uh, yeah, it was sort of this textbook example of short-term volatility uh, when nothing's really happening with the business and uh, more really concerns about inflation and, and those sorts of things. But uh, there are ways to handle that. But stop losses and, and limit orders and so, stuff like that aren't the thing. So let's talk a little bit about stop losses. I don't use stop losses because if there is a company I own, I don't care if it goes down 90% unless the reason it went down 90% is that it turns out that the CEO was actually you know a, a labradoodle dressed in a suit and they'd been fooling us all along. Unless there's some fundamental problem, if I like the company's prospects, I believe that thesis will play out. Some of the biotech stocks that, that Max and Manisha recommend, they might have wild 50, 60% swings, but it's, it's also important to remember that there are points where Microsoft has been down 50% off its 52-week high. So right. if you sold then, there's no guarantee you can get back in at a better price, and that's what you're risking. So you should only be selling stocks when your story on that stock changes. Steve, we have some comments from our very own Matt Cochran. Would you like to share them with our audience? Sure. Uh, since the bottom is only declared in retrospect, those who wait for it almost always go away empty handed. Uh, said a wise investor said that. Not sure who. Neither am I. Um, but yes, uh, that's that's so very true. Um, it's just, you know, you, you can say, oh, I should have bought at the bottom, but almost nobody knows when. And the people who did call it correctly are, are almost always just lucky in that sense or, you know, sort of the broken clock analogy. Um, right twice a day, you know, calling the bottom, calling the bottom. You heard it here first. Well, not really. And uh, it, it's virtually impossible to determine where those bottoms are. Um, just, you know, the, the way we do it here at 7investing is just to continuously buy businesses at what we deem attractive valuations at the time, month after month, continue building your portfolio that way. Don't worry about trying to time tops and bottoms and trading in and out. Buy them, hold them, add to them as you see fit, and your results will eventually um, really reflect uh, your patience and long-term view of things. Steve, thank you for that. There is a line. Matt Cochran, thank you for watching. We would love your questions and comments. We will get to them uh, either in this segment or later in the show. Uh, but Steve, 
a lot of people are worried about inflation and that prices are going to dramatically increase because there's going to be a surge uh, of demand after the, the pandemic. And I don't think that's going to be true because I don't think there's going to be one magic day where everything is normal. I think yeah. it's going to depend where you live. And, you know, I've been vaccinated, but my wife hasn't and you haven't. And, you know, as more of our team gets vaccinated, maybe we'll be able to meet someplace. So I, I do think this is going to be a staggered restart. But, but what do you answer to people that say, you know, oh, my God, I'm worried about inflation and price hikes and, and sort of all that? Um, yeah, I kind of uh, go back to uh, some some clips we had from an interview I did with Chris Mayer, the author of 100 Baggers, uh, a few months ago. And, um, you know, we're talking about um, how when you zoom out to businesses that generally performed really well, uh, most of the time, things like uh, inflation or what the Fed's doing um, or what this quarter's jobs number was or, you know, what who's in the White House, for example, most of the time that doesn't matter. Uh, to really great businesses over periods of years. These are, we look for businesses that will perform well, um, no matter who's in office or what policy do, policies are doing or what GDP is or what inflation is. And uh, most of the time you can put that aside. And, uh, you know, it's going to be one of those concerns where, you know, we haven't, uh, other concerns about reopening trade and pivoting away from high tech growth stocks and just buy shares of good businesses along the way. Uh, most of the rest is just noise. Uh, in the near term. And uh, it, it creates opportunity, like you said earlier. And people who actually are long-term investors overthink things on a short-term basis. You know, it, people talk a lot about, oh, well, the economy is open, so we can just get rid of our, our you know, tech stocks. It's like Apple, Zoom, <laughs> Shopify, Microsoft, those are all going to, you know, uh, Salesforce, those are all going to be important companies post-pandemic like you're not all of a sudden going to smash your iphone because you because it's easier to go out to dinner like and like yeah we might use some technology less but i can't think of one piece of technology that i've used during the pandemic that i'm not going to use after the pandemic will i have more in-person meetings yeah i hope so will i travel more than i zoom to talk to people yeah absolutely uh but it is definitely one of those situations where you know i i am not expecting some major pivot. I do think there will be this crazy periods where it's like all the tech stocks are down and uh, all the airlines are up. Airlines didn't magically become a good business because the economy is going to be going to reopen. And I know you can make a case for Alaskan Airlines. I, I can make a case for Southwest, but I can almost always make a better case for company for businesses that aren't so capital intensive and so dependent on things like fuel prices and, and other outside factors. Um, there's generally better places to put your money. But Steve, what do you say to the person who just on a day like yesterday, they look at their portfolio and they feel bad? Like, like I tell them, don't look at your portfolio as often, <laughs> yeah, uh, which don't. I know is a cavalier answer. But if you're yeah. a long-term investor, you have to take a long-term view. But how do you handle it? If maybe someone in your family who bought stocks because they're, they're a subscriber and they see a pretty bad day. Take a deep breath and, and realize we're focusing on the long-term. You know, you're, you're going to have days like this. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's that's a, a little troubling uh, is someone, you know, who, who tries to, to sort of offer education and, uh, and a, a right mindset for these kinds of things is that people are so willing to accept those rabid up days and unwilling to accept that sometimes stocks fall as well. 
And, uh, you know, they, they don't always go up contrary to what, you know, some of the, <laughs> the, the wall street bets folks might tell you, um, you know, and, and we need to be able to accept both sides of the coin, uh, stocks go up, stocks go down over time, shares of great businesses will trend higher. And, uh, and that's kind of what we need to look for is, uh, is those businesses that will, that will trend higher. And, you know, you need to be able to endure both up and down days uh, in terms of volatility, especially in today's market. So we're, you're watching Seven Investing now. We've got a couple more questions on market volatility, a couple that come from you, uh, one that, that I'm going to sort of paraphrase from Twitter. Then we're going to talk about uh, Virgin Galactic, some other upcoming earnings. We're going to move from there to talk about NFL rights and uh, sort of the line in the sand and what that's going to mean for uh, a whole lot of publicly traded companies that uh, that hold NFL rights. So, Steve, do you feel any different about any stock you own based on yesterday? No. Not really. <laughs> I, I don't I don't feel uh, different. What about you? So I have two that I own. I own very small pieces of Royal Caribbean and Carnival Cruise Lines. These are actually stocks I own almost because I like the industry. And I do believe in the long term that they will dig out of the massive amounts of debt. You know, you're talking eight, nine, ten billion dollars of added debt on their balance sheet. But these were highly profitable companies beforehand. And given the vaccine trend, the vaccination trend, I would put my money on they make it back into operating before they have to restructure under Chapter 11. So I, that, I feel better about that yesterday because you're starting to see some of the, the vaccine ramp up. Today, I feel a little better with it looking very likely that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine gets vaccinated, uh, that gets approved and more people will get vaccinated because I do think a vaccination is going to be a requirement to get on a cruise. So I feel better about those companies having a customer base, having an ability to keep their crew safe, to, to not open for a week and then get shut down again. Still very, very risky businesses because they've taken on a ton of debt. Um, do you worry about a market crash, Steve? It's, it's not something, you know, I worry about it from a, we're a business that's judged by our stock picks. And if there's yeah. something that cuts the market in half, that's not going to feel great for our business. Sure. But personally, I don't worry about it in the least. No, I, I actually uh, cross my fingers that, that we might get a market crash here and there. If you are a net buyer and if you're a long-term investor, you should celebrate um, you know, any sort of chances to buy shares of businesses you like at lower prices. And uh, market crashes are more common than you think. I'll have to dig up an old tweet and, uh, and retweet it, but, re- retweet it. but I, I think you know, we get... Um, you know, uh, pullbacks of, of what was it, 10% a couple times a year uh, from their highs, 20% once every like three to five. You know, we get a 30% pullback every 10 to 15 years or whatever. Uh, that's happened more often uh, in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, it's been kind of crazy. But um, these these big, huge drawdowns um, are, are more common than you would think. And, uh, and, and, you know, days are becoming more volatile. I, I still remember days a, a decade ago when they're talking about how the Dow moved a record 500 points or something. And I'm like, oh, oh <laughs> that's just sort of, you know, par for the course anymore. And uh, it just, you know, it happens and, and volatility is, is a thing. And, and it's just part of being an investor in equities. And that's just kind of how we need to think about it. And one of the things we do at 7investing is we give you picks that largely you don't have to worry about. There's obviously some high risk picks from time to time, but if you don't want to be a high risk investor, we identify the companies that you basically don't have to worry about. Look, and 
you know, if you own, and I'll just throw out some very stable stocks. If you own Microsoft, Costco, Walmart, and for some reason their prices get cut in half and it's not because they did something terrible, they're going to recover. And as a long-term investor, you don't have to worry about that. I think a lot of people try too hard. And Steve, that brings us to the thread we were in on Twitter earlier, uh, where someone asked us about a stock and I looked it up and it was a penny stock trading at 0.0012. So a less than a penny stock. Not. And I looked up the company and the website was fairly crummy and didn't really explain what they did. And there was no investor relations. So kind of what I would tell people is one, unless you're in that space and truly have some insight and knowledge as to why this company has the special sauce, that's not going to work. Even if they have a good idea and it becomes a good business, it is probably not a good investment. And when you don't have, there's no investor relations page for this company. When you can't look at the financials, how they spend their money, you're, you're guessing. And sure, there are times, and I don't play roulette, there are times you walk in, you put your money down on something and it hits. Somebody wins the lottery. But that doesn't make the lottery or roulette good investment. Steve, your stock, your thought on penny stocks? Yeah, they're they all too often end up being risky and turn out very badly for investors. And I mean, we're we're often you know, and we're not talking about businesses like we have. Um, to be clear, you know, we don't just have big, large cap, you know, big tech like big stable companies on Seven Investing Scorecard. We have some businesses in the you know two hundred million dollar range. Uh, as far as market capitalizations go, very small. Uh, we have a lot of small growth stocks out there. Um, but it, when we're talking about penny stocks, we're talking about like micro caps that are like $2 million market caps. Like for perspective, I worked as a software engineer for a company right out of college that was started by one of my professors. And we were acquired by uh, as a $400 million business, acquired us for something like 11 or $12 million dollars. We were a 19-person office working in Missoula, Montana, you know, that got acquired for that sum. And we, you know, we're, we're small potatoes. And I mean, when we're talking about businesses with two to $5 million market caps that are traded on, you know, some over-the-counter or OTC, I say over-the-counter, uh, some OTC exchange or something, it's, it's, it's risky. And they're tiny, and most often they turn out badly uh, for shareholders. So we, and they're, they're prone to... Um, manipulation as well. So that's part of the reason that we, um, as, as people with, with relatively large followings, don't responsibly comment on companies like that because they tend to well move uh, when people talk about them. And it's irresponsible, to be fair. And I, I understand the appeal. You know, oh my God, I can buy 100,000 shares. But the analogy I always give is, you know, you go to your, your Brugers, your Einstein brothers, and they sell day-old bagels and it's like half price and it's a great deal. So like, you know, if you're going to eat those bagels in the next day or two, you can probably toast them up. They're going to be fine. But if they're selling you month old bagels, it doesn't matter if they're only 1% of the cost because there's no value to a month old bagel. And in <laughs> most cases with these penny stocks, there's no value there. And they're public in a way that has no scrutiny. It's really, it's not always a scam. It's sometimes just a way to raise money. But if you're a $2 million market cap, your end game might be a company that does $3 million of business a year and pays everybody's salary. Like, you know, you're not going to put that on your website. Your website's always going to have some, you know, to reinvigorate communications across the globe. And it's like, yeah, that's not what this company we've never heard of is, is going to do. So I think it's really important to do your due diligence, know what you're talking about. And someone asked us on Twitter, can you think of a legitimate penny stock 
that made a comeback. And the only one we could both think of was Sirius XM. And the reason for that is Sirius XM, before they were, were Sirius XM, they were just Sirius at the time, was a viable business that was very expensive to run. You could see how they could succeed if they got the money they needed. But at the time, it looked likely that they might not. So bankruptcy was an option. So that, they traded as low as, I want to say, four cents. Uh, yeah. And I've talked about this before. I bought some and was thrilled when I sold it at a dollar. Had I been a long-term investor, uh, it got up much higher. Not much higher, but like I think into the sixes or the sevens. So, yeah. you know, and, I gave... That was the, the big thing to keep in mind there was that was a business that was literally within hours of bankruptcy before John Malone uh, of DirecTV fame swooped in, I think, with a $500 million loan to stave off bankruptcy. That's why it was down there. It wasn't, you know, one of these companies that started small and got big. And I'm sure there's examples out there of, of little tiny micro caps that became, you know, big, big, you know, regular exchanges trading on a major exchange, etc. But by and large, the vast, vast majority turn out badly. And, and it's also worth noting that Sirius at the time had millions of paying subscribers who liked the product. It just cost billions of dollars to put satellites in the air. That mm -hmm. is the problem. We have room for your questions and comments. We're going to take one now from RX Supply Chain Guru. Thanks for sharing. What are your thoughts on the higher bond yield narrative that is out there? Legitimate or overblown? Somewhere in between. Appreciate your insights. Steve, I don't trade bonds, so this one's all, all right. on you. All right. So uh, I don't trade bonds either, but uh, I, I know what's going on here. And part of this is is sort of indirectly related to the inflation trade and, and higher interest rates. Now, the thing is, um, when interest rates are, are low and kept low by the Federal Reserve, it makes fixed income investments like bonds unattractive. So it has the um, byproduct of essentially moving money uh, over into equities because they are a much more attractive uh, option to actually put your money to work. And uh, so the narrative is that is bond yields climb if interest rates rise and bond yields kind of follow suit that we're going to have um, sort of this inflow out of equities, stocks and into bonds. Um, yes, legitimate to an extent, but, you know, from the comments we've heard from the Federal Reserve keeping um, interest rates relatively low, uh, you know, and they will climb and there, there might be some some outflows with from institutional investors from conservative equities into bonds. But I don't think this is something that we need to panic about and expect that stocks are going to crash because uh, bond yields are climbing. And uh, it's it, it's a thing, but it's nothing that I think we need to lose any sleep over uh, as as stock pickers. I think that's the the key is that we're trying to find shares of businesses that we like and are promising, and uh, and have chances of outsized returns relative to bonds. Otherwise, hey, buy all the bonds you want and make you know one percent or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big part of our message at Seven Investing, and and, and I look at it as. Our job is to help everybody be an individual stock investor, to give people the tools that match up with the fact that trades are free uh, on most platforms now, that it's really easy to buy stocks, but to not only give you the tools to buy them, but to hold your hand so you can hold them. So when you see a really good company go down by 40%, uh, which happens, that you understand, okay, hey, Steve Simonton, a subscriber call answered to me, yep, this happened, here's why. Uh, there, there are sometimes outsized news stories on very minor things that can cause pretty big movements in stocks. So that's what we do for our members. And all of you are watching today, and we appreciate it very much. 
Some of you are members and some of you are not. If you're a member, of course, you get access to our seven highest conviction stock picks each month. That's great. That's a big part of the service. But the other part of the service is you get private access to us in a new subscriber call, in a member call, and all sorts of reports and write-ups that we do, some of which are free, but for them, for a lot of them are just for members. And that gives you our, our sort of deepest, darkest insight on, hey, this stock I recommended six months ago that's been kind of crazy, do I think it can go up another 300%? Do I, you know, is it still worth it to get in? Steve, if people want to subscribe, how do they do it? Do they just send you and I cash or Bitcoin or, <laughs> or uh, you know, McDonaldland coupons? Like, you know, how, how do they subscribe to 7investing? Go to 7investing.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, take a look what we offer. There's two options, a monthly for 17 bucks a month or annual for 170 a year. And uh, you basically save a couple months if you go with the annual rate. And uh, pretty straightforward. And you can see all of our past recommendations and our current ones. We have some new ones coming out on March 1st as well. And we just held a call where we talked <laughs> about the stocks that we like the most that are on our scorecard as well. So we offer that as kind of a, a supplementary perk to our members now. Um, so And um, it's it's so unbelievably diverse. So if you look out on LinkedIn right now, the seven investing account shared an article I wrote that was how I use the seven investing picks. And I think everybody knows I cover retail. I cover tech. So I'm, I, I'm a pretty conservative investor. Uh, so I actually buy Max Chasco's and Manisha Sammy's pick a small amount each month. And they are by far, in most cases, the most volatile things in my portfolio. But I know that that's a counterbalance to my personal style where I really have to understand a company to be willing to buy something. I will also say that there is not one of you who at some point I haven't bought a pick after the first of the month because I saw your presentation and you turned me on to a company I hadn't thought of. So we talk a lot about having an investing thesis. We create the investing thesis, which if you're a seasoned investor, that just might back up what you're doing. If you're not, that gives you the conviction to buy the stocks we're recommending. But Steve, for what we're watching, uh, you had a hard time picking something. Why don't you explain? Yeah, uh, it's <laughs> it, There is so much to watch right now. And, and you know, to be honest, it, it was difficult to nail down a, a single one thing I'm watching. Um, we, we have this trend uh, you know, of larger and more companies buying Bitcoin, for example. We had a podcast on that with our partners at CryptoEQ recently. Um, we have concerns of a rising inflation and bond yields like we just talked about. There's this pivot away from high growth names toward reopening plays and value stocks. Like that's the scary thing that people are wondering, like, oh, my gosh, could value stocks have their day in the sun? Um, but I guess if I had to nail down one thing um, I'm watching, it's it's so easy to to forget amid all this craziness that we're still in the thick of earnings season and not any, not just any earnings season. This is the fourth quarter earnings season. We get a lot of annual reports, a lot of information coming out. Um, so today and tomorrow in particular, some of the busiest days of earnings season, we're going to see a lot of numbers and a lot of wild swings when it comes to people responding to earnings reports. So we're going to get earnings from uh, NVIDIA. Lowe's reported this morning. Uh, TJX companies, Redfin is coming tomorrow, I believe. But one ticker in, uh, that I'm really interested in and a stock I own personally uh, is Virgin Galactic. They're actually releasing tomorrow. And, um, you know, for perspective, Virgin Galactic shares actually rallied pretty hard um, last month in anticipation of its uh, sort of rescheduled test flight, which was kind of to serve as a do-over for its December failed test flight where a rocket engine failed to ignite because of a uh, safety mechanism being triggered. Um, in that sense, it was sort of a success, but they didn't make it to space like they wanted to. They uh had a rescheduled flight with a test window that was supposed to start two Saturdays, two Saturdays ago. That was on February 13th. 
And uh, kind of on the eve of that window, uh, that Friday, they said, ah, we're going to allow more time for technical checks. We're keeping our eyes out for uh, a new flight window. And the stock pulled back really hard. Um, two levels not seen since like three and a half weeks ago. So <laughs> that's Steve, it's, let, let, let me jump in here. That way. Yeah. Normally, when we look at earnings for a mature business, so Lowe's reported, and you look at the numbers, did their sales go up? What are they forecasting? Sure. Lowe's, actually, Lowe's actually said they expect there might be a slowdown in some of the do-it-yourself stuff as the economy opens up. I think we're heading into a really weird year of having to explain your comps next year because right. margins will be up, but sales will be down. But Virgin Galactic doesn't really have a business yet. Do their earnings report matter? Or is it really just the information they give on when the next test flight is going to yeah. be? So it's less about, you know, and, and when you say, to be clear, like when Dan says they don't have a, a business, you know, he means they're not generating revenue actively. You know, they're taking, um, you know, they, they've taken uh, reservations for these $250,000 flights into space. And uh, sort of the long-term goal for this company is, is, to really, to not only allow these sort of flights into space for well-to-do people, but over the longer term, allow for, um, you know, kind of low orbit flights that that speed things up. You know, you could fly around the world a lot faster when you're doing it with a rocket ship. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's this long distance fast travel thing. They're looking at changing uh, kind of the way things work in that sense. But yeah, you're right. When quarterly earnings are released, uh, tomorrow there won't be earnings, <laughs> and that's uh, I, you know we're looking more at um, what they say about their test flights, uh, potential follow-up flights, and eventually putting uh, their founder uh, Richard Branson into space as sort of a you know this is our last big flight before we start opening it up to the public. They want to make sure they have everything buttoned up and ready. And uh, I'm very curious tomorrow whether we get some news on their revised uh, test flight schedule. And that could serve as a catalyst for the stock. However, overvalued people might argue that it is. Uh, I, I think it, it, it'll probably end up being a much larger business over the long term. And uh, it, it's going to be a wild next couple of days, I think, for Virgin Galactic shareholders. I, I got to be honest, Steve. I, I like Richard Branson. I, I've seen him speak. He's incredibly engaging. He seems like a really nice guy. I don't want them to send him to space because he's <laughs> famous enough that there's going to be a movie about his life. That's the ending. Let's, let's ending, not make that the ending. That would be very, yeah. That would you, be, you know, I, I just think he should go on like the 100th flight, not – not like the first flight. It, it it just seems like a bad idea. I mean, basically any time in school they gathered us around to watch a space shuttle launch, yeah. it meant something bad was going to happen. So yeah. I, I, I think you need to be really careful. But I have, I'm going to go back to something you talked about earlier. Uh, but, for, but before I do that, I want to just say with earnings for the next like two years, there's going to be a lot more nuance to earnings than there previously has been. Because yeah. the pandemic, look, the pandemic has been really good for a lot of companies. So if Domino's Pizza, which has had you know crazy like twenty percent you know gains, next year goes back to reporting two and three percent you know quarter over quarter, year over year sales gains, you have to or even some drops. If those are drops when you were up twenty two percent in the previous year because people were stuck in their house, you have to put that in perspective. And I don't think you know I hate dissing the news media, but I don't think the financial media has the ability to put that in perspective. Right. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of headlines that feel misleading. Uh, and investors will need to keep this in mind. There's going to be a lot of executives saying, hey, comps are weird. Uh, I'm paraphrasing what they're going to say, but <laughs> they're going to say, hey, last year was weird. I think most people will understand that. And, uh, it, you know, we'll kind of, as the world sort of gets back to normal. And uh, I think that's part of the, um, 
the, the promise of this is there's a light at the end of the tunnel now. But as the world gets back to normal, I look forward to seeing uh, which businesses thrive and which businesses stories were accelerated uh, by the pandemic or at least reaffirmed. Plenty of room for your questions and comments. Uh, you have been quiet today, so we would love to hear more of you weigh in. That's sometimes technical, but I, I have seen some, so who knows? Uh, but Steve, we've talked a little bit about Tesla and Bitcoin in the beginning. You know I'm not a particularly big fan of Elon Musk. I think he he's a showman who tries to manipulate markets. I don't trust him. But even if he's honestly buying Bitcoin because he thinks it's a good investment for Tesla's uh, capital, do you think he's tied the price of Tesla to the price of Bitcoin? I, I, it, it feels um, to me that it's a pretty big factor now. I, I saw people make that argument, and it seems disingenuous to me uh, because you know I think we're talking about an investment for Tesla that was something like 1.5% uh, you know, uh, of, its, of its funds and like 8% of its cash balance. It was just silly uh, to, to make that argument that Tesla is tied to the price of Bitcoin. Like if they had their entire balance sheet in Bitcoin, yeah, maybe. Um, but it seems silly that if the price of Bitcoin goes from 58,000 to 49,000, that Tesla, uh, which had, what was it, a $700 billion market cap, um, you know, should should swing that wildly because they made a one and a half billion dollar investment. That's just seven hundred um, billion dollar market cap. But how much cash on hand do they have? I'm going to guess it's under ten billion dollars. That that's a guess. So they are putting a decent amount of their available cash into Bitcoin. So that does. And and again, I try to not be too critical of Tesla because I know they are doing a lot of great things. That yeah. does worry me a little bit. And we're seeing other companies do it. So it's one we'll keep an eye on. Yeah, so uh, $14.5 in cash on hand, I think, at the end of the third quarter. So and, about 10% uh, is in Bitcoin. So yeah, about 8 to 10% of their cash balance in Bitcoin. You know, big, big whoop, you know, uh, considering their, their capital expenditures, I think they can comfortably do that, uh, in my opinion. Bringing back the classics with big whoop. Andrew Connolly <laughs> says, uh, to be fair, the space shuttle made 133 successful flights compared to the two, albeit horrifying, of course, failures. I, yes, I'm glad you brought that up. But Steve, you're too young to remember this. But when the Challenger blew up, uh, they, they were sending a teacher to space, a woman named Krista McAuliffe. So they had every student in the country watching that launch. And ever since then, I've believed in kind of the idea, don't tempt fate like that. Like, like if you're pretty sure you're going to win, don't yeah. tell all your friends to watch. Like, yeah. and, but, and this, this is one of those things where I think uh, companies today and um, – you know, it's not like watching a uh, a rocket landed by SpaceX, for example, that they expect to to blow up because they're learning how to land it again. Uh, you know, we're we're talking about a, a vehicle that drops down from another uh, from another uh, plane and then goes into low orbit from there with a rocket attached to it. Yes, but uh, I, I think the technology and the engineering is much more solid uh, as it pertains to its ability to withstand. Um, the necessary stresses of actually uh, doing something like this. But yes, we're heading into the home stretch here and it's uh, it's Mickey Mouse against the NFL. Disney, Disney is shot back. So Steve, you know, you're a football fan. Uh, no team there in Montana, but I, I, I'm sure you have a team you root for. Mm -hmm. So the NFL wants a hundred percent price increase from its network league partners. And <laughs> Disney, which owns ESPN, has basically said, no. And part of that is one, ESPN broadcasts Monday night football. 
Monday Night Football is not the signature package it used to be. It's generally kind of a crummy package. And Disney is coming back and saying, you know, hey, look, uh, we paid $1.9 billion for that last time per year. We're not yeah. going to pay 3.8. We might pay you some more, but we want digital rights uh, because they are eyeing having a digital version of ESPN. So they're going to need to get rights to have a standalone streaming ESPN service. Uh, and hey, we want a double header. We want multiple games. If you're only going to give us crummy games or mostly crummy games, we want games. Steve, mm-hmm. do you think Disney has leverage here? Like you only need one other player to want the package for Disney yeah. to be out. Yeah, uh, I, I'd say yes and no. I mean, when you look at that, um, I, I guess for perspective, when you look at the NFL asking for 100% price increase from a contract that it signed in 2011, you know, that's <laughs> what, eight, eight and a half percent uh, compound annual growth to get to 100% gain from there. So um, do the economics support that? I don't know. Um, I think Disney no, is. No, here's the thing. They, 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 they don't. So yeah. although NFL games are one of the last things people watch in real time, the ratings for Sunday nights and Monday nights, while a bit down this year, because there's been some pandemic fatigue, uh, they were up yeah. last year uh, after being down two years ago, but they're down this year, largely because it's not the same. There's no fans. It's a little bit weird. We're yeah. all preoccupied. Um, the Super Bowl turned out to be a blowout, so the numbers weren't particularly great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, if you look at the pure games, you probably, if you're Disney, cannot make $3.8 billion back in ad revenue and streaming revenue or whatever it is. Yeah. But you have to think of the bigger picture, and this is where it gets really squishy. If you're Disney and you use the fact that 13 to 20 million people are tuning in for Monday Night Football to sell Disney Plus subscriptions or to get people to watch uh, a new show about wacky neighbors who somehow ended up living next to each other you know, on ABC, and that becomes a hit, well, there are ways to make the money back. And there's always been another player. The challenge here is you already have NBC, CBS, Fox, ABC. That is all the broadcast networks. So does Disney, do they negotiate with an Amazon? Do they do what, the, you know, the, the DirecTV Sunday ticket package is also going to come up. And that could go to the cable companies. That could go to, you know, you know a streamer who wants to spend, a, a, you know, a couple billion dollars. You know, Fubo, Fubo can get $2 billion to buy that. that. That would be an accelerator for their business. It would also be a giant money loser. Do not do that if, uh, if you're Fubo. <laughs> but Steve, do you think we're, that there's a, a rabbit in its hat that the NFL has where it can where it has another player where it can force Disney to come to the table? Yeah, no, uh, maybe um, they, they could, you know, my guess is they probably uh, strike a deal somewhere in between what they paid in 2011 and what the NFL is asking for. Uh, but they could certainly um, sort of split the rights with somebody else and uh, reduce the cost to that. But uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if someone else tr- comes in and tries to, to upsell them uh, for that, because it is sort of coveted content uh, for a platform that can say, you know, they can use that like Disney hopes to, uh, you know, to sell Disney Plus subscriptions or something, um, but uh, we'll we'll see how it plays out. Uh, I'm I'm not. I don't so know. I, I actually think the the NFL is largely going to get what it wants. Uh, so um, it was 1.1 billion for Fox. Fox has the NFC package, which is generally considered a little bit better. Uh, about a billion dollars uh, for CBS, uh, which is the AFC package, and 960 million for Sunday Night Football on NBC. All of those are going to double. I, I think that makes sense. Um, 
I, Sunday night football maybe more than doubles because that's maybe the most valuable real estate in sports right now on a consistent basis from a ratings point of view. So it's one of those things where I do think they're going to get their money, but I think Disney is going to get everything it wants for more money than they're paying, but not a hundred percent increase, but you might see somebody else also get digital rights to those games. Disney's concession might have to be that Amazon can also broadcast those games or, or, or who knows what it is. There might be something there. Uh, we're going to go to our finisher in a minute, but we've got a question from Turf P. When your long-term portfolio is plummeting like yesterday, what goes on in your mind? Uh, do you sell, add, or nothing? This is what we, co- we covered at the beginning of the show, but for people who are joining late, we do nothing. We might add if, if we have some money sitting on the side. We don't care about what happens in a day unless what happened is something that fundamentally changes our thesis. So I'll give you a ridiculous example, then I'll let Steve jump in. If it came out yesterday that coffee is much more of a risk to your heart than we thought it was, that might change my long-term thesis on Starbucks. If that became medical mantra that if you drink two cups of coffee a day, you're 80% more likely to have a heart attack. That's I'm picking something silly. Please don't report that or aggregate that anywhere. Um, but if that happened then you might go, ooh, Starbucks makes a lot of money selling multiple cups of coffee. This is pretty bad for their business. I no longer believe in it. That's a very extreme example. If, uh, if Satya Nadella was eaten by a dragon yesterday, I might question my, my stake in Microsoft. Now, I wouldn't make any decisions until we saw who took over. Uh, but no, I don't worry about sort of short-term market volatility. Steve, your thoughts there? Um. You know, and, and we got another question from Geek of Games. Uh, in general, do you add to stocks you already own on dips or buy new stocks? Um, you know, I can use this to add to Turt's question as well. Um, good name, by the way. The um, it, it all depends uh, on the stocks that I'm watching. You know, I, I try and do both. If there's a stock that has been crushed uh, unjustifiably, I'll add to my position. Uh, but there are no shortage of new opportunities all the time. Uh, which is how we come up with seven um, stock ideas every single month for investors. Uh, they, you know, we just we continuously add to our portfolios. We buy them with real money for our scorecard uh, for tracking every month, and uh, you know it, it's just by month after month. I'm really not changing anything anything I'm doing because the market is falling on one day, and like you said, uh, really nothing different. Uh, if we were going to buy before, we'll buy now and just continuously do that over time. And you'll participate in both the market's gains and its losses. Uh, but See, over the, time, it should be higher. The one thing I'll say is I may accelerate a buy. So I put money into my account every couple of weeks and I, and I tend to spend it immediately. If I look and see that what I was planning to buy, say, next Monday is down 20%, I may move that transfer up to move money into my account to if that stock stays down 20% by the time there's money in my account, I might buy it sooner, but that's really just moving around what I was already going to do. Occasionally, if there's something I really believe in, I may actually just like transfer some more money into my account to buy a little bit of that stock. The other thing I'll say about portfolios is people ask us all the time, how many stocks should I own? And I now group my portfolio in two ways. I have one bag of stocks. That's the stocks that I've recommended, that I believe in, that I own because I'm, I'm taking a risk. And that's my... Dan does the the due diligence. Dan watches the stocks. Uh, I do my homework. I may get help from all of you at Seven Investing, but those are my stocks. Then I have another basket that, like, I don't even necessarily remember what the names of the companies are. These are stocks that 
Max and Manisha picked, Steve picked, uh, really all of you, where I might not have considered owning that stock, but you made such a compelling case that I'm outsourcing. It's your job to track those stocks and and tell me if something big has changed. And that's one of the best things of, you know, as much as I, I am an, uh, a worker here at 7investing, I'm also a member and I get to take advantage of all we have to offer. We thank you for the good questions. Uh, probably time to sneak one or two more in, but af, uh, we will look after we hit our finisher. Sam Bailey, if you want to bring up the graphic. Which of these companies have the best chance of a major turnaround? Macy's, which uh, was actually surprisingly profitable this quarter uh, on, on much drop sales, uh, but 8.8% of you believe in Macy's. Carnival Cruise Line, about half of you uh, believe that they're going to have a major turnaround. AMC, a quarter of you believe AMC. You're wrong. <laughs> There's just zero <laughs> possibility. AMC, unless they fully changed what they were going to do, we are simply not going to go to the movies in the level we used to, the big movie companies have seen the value of not putting everything out in a traditional theatrical release. AMC was a bad business before the pandemic. It's a terrible business after the pandemic. Even if tomorrow everything goes back to normal, they're going to struggle. Kohl's, 14.4% of you. Steve, do you have a favorite on this list? Uh, my favorite uh, here, I think, was Carnival uh, as, as far as uh, – kind of turnaround stocks go. There is an argument to be made that AMC might reach sort of a, a steadier state where its share price sits higher than it is today. Um, but I'm not buying it as a long-term business. Uh, Macy's and Kohl's, eh, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm meh on them. Uh, Carnival, though, though, I think you can make the case that uh, that we'll see a turnaround there. So. so Macy's, it's encouraging that they were profitable, yeah. but they were profitable on a significant drop in sales. And you can only cut your way to profitability for so long. So what yep. Macy's has to show me next is, okay, you've closed a bunch of stores. You've saved a bunch of money. How are you going to grow your digital? How are you going to make your existing stores work? Are there new formats you're going to roll out? Yeah. At some point, you have to be a growth company or you're not investable. Kohl's yeah. to me is the most disappointing here because they have the most obvious art audience. There's no reason Kohl's shouldn't do as well as Target does in apparel. And Kohl's has boring, tired clothes, whereas... Target has done a really good job with owned and operating brands, not just in clothes, across its whole portfolio. You, know, you go yeah. in and buy Good & Gather. I forget the, the name of the brand for all the bath products, but it's packaged nicely. It's, it's very intriguing. You walk by you know, like the yoga stuff, and okay, it's not Lululemon, but it looks like it's high quality. The displays are great. You walk into to Kohl's, and it feels the same as Kohl's did 10 years ago. Um, you know, Their deal with Amazon, there's a lot of questions about whether they're, they're – they're making any money on that. And look, I've talked about it before. I would like to see a bigger Kohl's Amazon deal. I'd like to see the Amazon owned and operated lines be sold in Kohl's. That would immediately be good for Amazon. It would immediately refresh the Kohl's brands. I think Macy's has a chance. I think Kohl's has a chance. I do not think AMC has a chance. Um, <laughs> again, a chance to be an operating concern, maybe. A chance to be a growth company in any way, no. Carnival Cruise Lines was a great business before the pandemic. It could be a great business after. Yeah. Uh, I like Royal Caribbean a little more. Carnival, because I want to say the share price is cheaper, has been had more people buying it. That's not a great reason to buy a stock. Um, you want to look at the clientele. The clientele in Royal Caribbean are a little bit higher end than the clientele on Carnival. So like they could spend more money. They could you know upgrade more. I, I think there's cases for both. But on this list, I think you got it right. Uh, seven investors with picking Carnival Cruise Lines. Steve, we've done this for about 45 minutes. It is time to go. So what do people do if they have questions for us? Um, 
One <laughs> last question is, uh, Steve, you want to share this one? You can read this one out loud. We, we got interrupted. Don't, don't share the, uh, the part that may give away a pick, but if you want to share the second half of this. Well, yeah, we won't, we won't display that. But uh, he said, Dan, how did you get interested in investing and improve along the way? What is the most important thing when buying growth stocks that have no cash flow or short history? So for me, I got involved in this sort of back door. I got hired for a job at Microsoft uh, where I wasn't told what the job was <laughs> and it turned cause it was secret. Windows eight was still a secret. And I was the launch editor of what's now the MSN money app, which was great for many years is now terrible cause it's AI driven and not people driven. But I, every day picked the stories that went into that, to that app. And my boss for much of that time, a gentleman named Vic Bondi, who's a bit of a music legend as well. Vic would call me every morning, like really excited about the market and the stocks and what was going on. And, I just became very infectious. So I started reading like the Wall Street Journal every day and watching eight hours a day of Bloomberg and slowly and slowly learned uh, and then went to work uh, as a writer at The Motley Fool, which uh, Steve does as well. It's not a name we say out loud a lot, but it's it's uh, something that's part of our history. And when I was there, I was exposed to all these amazing investors, you know, people like Dan Kaplinger and Mac Frankel and who very slowly taught me to go from being a journalist who wrote about businesses to understanding the fundamentals of the companies. And it was one of those things where I started to go, oh, wait a minute, I know a lot about retail. Like I could look at two retailers that both look like they're doing great and I can analyze why one is doing better than the others because I've worked in that space. I understand supply chain and logic. So for me, it was all about how my sort of journalism and observational skills kind of matched to what everyone else was doing. And I felt as I got into this and started to really consider myself uh, you know, a stock picker. And I'll, I'll credit my fl- my friend, Emily Flippin, for being the person who kept for months telling me, no, you can pick stocks. Like you you know how to do this. Um, and it just slowly grew from the, the deep knowledge we built of these companies of six, eight years of reading their, an- their annual reports and their, their quarterly earnings call. Steve, how did you get involved in this? Oh man. Um, yeah, I, I, I started investing uh, just before the the financial crisis, <laughs> you know, two thousand six, two thousand seven, uh, right in there, um, and, and yeah, it was uh, it just realized gr- slowly that uh, I liked being an investor more than I liked being a software engineer, and uh, <laughs> I was blessed with the opportunity to be able to do that professionally full time, um, and it was it was a whole lot of fun uh, to be able to research constantly. And, uh, it's, it's, um, I think it's, it's nice to have the luxury to do nothing but research stocks all day and to kind of hone your, your mental, um, your, your mental aspects of it, because it really, it is, um, it's more about your attitude and your patience and, uh, having a long-term mentality, uh, I think is the key, uh, to actually investing well. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's something that kind of started, um, with with 401k accounts and being able to to actually trade individual stocks and and uh, learning learning the ropes uh, through the course of that last financial crisis, uh, which was kind of bonkers. So uh, that was fun. And uh, I'll give a peek behind the curtains of Seven Investing because it's one of the things I like the most. We only each have to pick one stock a month, so we get to pour an enormous amount of time and research into what stock we like. So that's. That, that is by design, that is how our CEO, Simon Erickson, set up the company. But the other thing we have is we have each other. <laughs> so when I have an idea 
or fundamentally, you know, like I got asked today a question by, by Simon about sort of trust in the media that I gave a pretty long answer to that I, I have a good perspective on. I worked at, at the Boston Globe, so I can tell you sort of like, you know, the part of the example I give is a lot of people think that like an editor, like, like in Spider-Man, you know, J. Jonah Jameson sits in like assigned stories and 99 times out of 100 reporters generate stories. Like it's, it's sort of fundamentally one of the movie things. That's not knowledge that necessarily any of you would have had. That might not be helpful from an investing point of view, but there's so many things where I might look at something, oh, okay, this makes sense to me, but Max has a totally different perspective on it. Or Matt, as a, as a parent who has multiple kids, or Steve who has multiple kids, might have a totally different view of the cost of going to Disney World than I do. So these aren't always like stock things that we've learned over years. Some of it's just human things. And all of that different perspective and analysis has made us all better stock analysts. And that's not just internal. We have lots of friends who, who we spend time with that, that do this professionally or do this on the side as well. But we really get to take the time to figure this out. So I've only been professionally picking stocks since I've been here. That said, I've written, I don't know, 10,000 articles that had analysis that could lead you to buy or not buy a stock. And I, I stand behind every one of those. So we'll take one more question. We were going to end here, but if you ask good questions, we'll, we'll stay all day. I'd uh, love to take this next one. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, from our friend, Gerald Marshall. Hi, Gerald. Uh, do stocks you recommend ever become not a good stock to own down the road? Uh, Yes, sometimes. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. We're still a young company. We were launched uh, just under a year ago. Actually, I can't believe it's been a year already. How fantastic. Uh, but we will uh, tell 7investing subscribers if something changes with our buy thesis for any given stock. Um, so I, I guess that's uh, it's very important, uh, even though it hasn't happened, uh, in the hopefully rare event that something happens to negatively uh, irreparably damage our, our confidence, uh, really dismantling our buy thesis for any given stock. Uh, we will alert subscribers to the news. Um, and, uh, you know, we hate to be wrong, of course, uh, but we'll admit it if something happens. But we perform so many hours of research, as Dan mentioned earlier, into the stocks that we recommend each month. Hopefully this should be very rare. And, uh, you know, if if a sell arises, um, you know, I, I've been wrong over the course of the last 15 years before. Uh, usually it's something that nobody saw coming, you know, it be, be it fraud or, you know, just some strange, you know, dismantling. Seldom is it something where your buy thesis is just slowly, di you know, disappears. Um, so I guess that's, um, it, it there, happens to the best of us. There so. is theoretically one other time we'd issue a sell. And this probably won't happen in the next five years. But if you own a company, and it plays out its thesis. It becomes a mature company and it's no longer in growth mode. It's just in profit generation mode. That might not be a good stock to own. So I, I always talk about Starbucks because it's an easy one to envision. But if Starbucks maxes out in China, maxes out in grocery stores with its Nestle deal, builds out its premium brand and is this giant behemoth that sure, they might dabble in like, well, what if we owned a burger chain? Like, but like nothing is going to be a clear growth driver. That might happen 20 years from now. And we might say, hey, we love this company. But when we bought it, it was at 40. Now it's at 132,000 split adjusted. We've, we've made our money. We just don't believe the story is still there. So all of this is going to be very 
very rare because we buy companies we want to be owners of. And, and that's something we, we can't say enough. Steve, I'll give you the last word before I close out the show. One more case that happens sometimes is a case of acquisitions. Uh, we have had seven investing recommendations get acquired uh, already in our first year. And, uh, you know, in some cases, we'll choose to hang on, uh, like in the case that actually that happened. Uh, where we decided, you know what, we're going to hang on and essentially own shares of the business that acquired them because we believe it's a compelling business as well. Uh, but in some cases, we'll see companies get acquired and uh, the premium is just so immense. And the, you know, whether it's a stock and cash deal or whatever, uh, sometimes that's another case where we might recommend a sell. Um, but hey, it happens, uh, unfortunately, to the, the best businesses more often than you think. And uh, that's maybe one of the most annoying reasons to sell for me uh, is when I'm like, dang it, I wish, you know, I was hoping for a 10 bagger out of this and I'm settling for a hundred percent gain or whatever. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess it's not a terrible problem to have, but uh, you hate it when businesses get taken off your hands by suitors. Yeah. And sometimes weird things happen, you know, like, like if Jack in the box buys fastly, you might not want to own Jack in the box fastly. Like, like I'm teasing a little bit. I picked the silliest combination I could, but that, that does sometimes happen. Steve, we reached the end of the show. So, how do we get some of these questions? Of course, we get a lot of them from you live. We also get a lot of them on our Twitter. Our Twitter is at 7investing. And if you look at our Twitter, our personal Twitters, our team Twitter, we're all pretty active. Uh, so in general, we don't share opinions on individual stocks. Uh, we do that for our members. We don't generally do that uh, on Twitter. But your investing questions, your discussions, like anything you want to talk about, you want to ask me about who the Patriots are going to sign at quarterback. I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, so that is at seven investing on Twitter is our team account, but we all take a look at it. And if you have questions for us, how our service works, uh, you know, qu questions that might be stopping you from joining, you're a member and you have a question that's info at seven investing.com. It's usually Steve uh, doing that. And sometimes he'll throw things out to all of us. We've gotten some great provocative questions. If there's guests you think we should have on or things like that, share that on Twitter. Uh, if there's questions that, you know, you know, Jeesh, I have the service and I can't find this, or I'm thinking about becoming a member, but Jeesh, I'm worried about this happening. That's for the email. Uh, but either way, talk to us. We're here. We'd like to be there. We appreciate you watching. We appreciate how many great questions we have. We're going to be back on Friday. We're going to talk a lot of earnings on Friday. And Steve, let me tease it now. The third Friday in March, all six of us are going to be together. We're going to do a special, it's going to be a special time, 12.30. We're going to do a blowout show for everybody with all of us. We might even ask Sam Bailey to sit in because we're going to do a, a, a loose, fun show. I'm teasing it a month early, but I'm so excited. I felt like it was worth bringing up. For Steve Simonton, I'm Dan Klein. We'll see you Friday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.